really impressed upon me and my, my little brother two things. The first was, and I understood this pretty early on, was get your education. Mm. Like if my dad were sitting here right now, he would go on and on and on education. about how not getting his education has held him back from doing what he's wanted to do. Okay. And so he always impressed upon us to be able to get our education. And the second thing that took me some time to actually truly understand mm. was you're gonna work a lot in your life to so do something you truly love to do. Hi everybody, super excited to share my conversation with my friend Nick Bear, the founder and CEO of Saxby's, which is a hospitality and coffee company headquartered right in the heart of Philadelphia. Quick background on Nick, he is 40 years old and lives in Philadelphia with his wife Haley and their son Luke. Nick was born and raised in Chicago alongside his little brother and then made his way to Cornell University where he was the captain of the baseball team. After Cornell, he moved to Atlanta and worked in the corporate world doing consulting for a couple of years. And then when Nick was 25, he created Saxby's. Nick tells us that what sets Saxby's apart from other coffee companies is their extreme hospitality. They treat every single employee and customer with the utmost respect. They build cafes that have an uplifting environment with friendly faces, delicious drinks, and exceptional food. So if you read about Nick today, you will see he has had tremendous success with Saxby's, but it's really important to remember that it was an overnight success. Just a few years into the business, Nick found himself $150,000 in credit card debt and had to file for bankruptcy in 2009. Although there were some dark times, Nick never gave up and continued to power through. In 2009, he moved Saxby's to Philadelphia, go Philly, and rebuilt the company. Fast forward 10 years, they are now very profitable and have 27 locations across nine states. In 2015, Nick also introduced Saxby's groundbreaking experiential learning program in partnership with Drexel University. It was the nation's first entirely student-run cafe where students can earn full academic credit and wages. So basically, they manage all aspects of a Saxby's cafe. Yes, these college students are actually in charge of the 30-plus member team that financials and community partnerships. It has had so much proven success at Drexel that they now have student-run cafes at eight other universities and are quickly growing. I hope you guys enjoy Nick's story as much as I did. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thank so. you so much uh, for taking the time. And like we were just talking about, I listened to a couple other podcasts you were on and read some of the articles that featured your story. And throughout some of those articles, you talk about your daily schedule. And I know that's packed. So yeah. very grateful you set aside the time. Yeah. Um, and before we dive into it, one thing I wanted to ask you about was that in a lot of the articles, you say you kickstart your day with Pilates at yeah. 6.30 in yeah. your wife's studio. Yeah. So I did track and cross-country in college. So naturally, I kind of started running after college. But just recently, I got really into Pilates. Yeah. One of my best friends from growing up, and she's a podcast past guest, Liz Finnegan-McKee, has a studio in Wayne. Oh, cool. So she's gotten me hooked, yeah. and it's like a game changer. Game changer, So yeah. I, think, I think it's great for all athletes and former athletes, but speaking as athletes, I was a yeah. baseball, basketball, football guy my, my whole life, and what I see like in my class, like I did Pilates this morning at 6.30 mm-hmm. a.m., which is just like an amazing start to every single day, but I think especially for runners, you know, mm-hmm. running often sort of tightens your muscles, yeah. and like, you know, oftentimes it's not amazing for posture, and your back, and those kinds of things, and so Pilates, I think, is, is particularly beneficial for people who are also active runners. You know, totally, so I see yeah. so many people in my classes and in the studio that are runners. And it's like, a good compliment. It's a, it's a really yeah. good compliment. Because I think like, when people like to run, it's hard to get runners to not run them. Right. You know, right, like right. My, my wife owning her studio, and she's obviously an incredible professional at what she does. Like, 
I think she does encourage people to run less, but she realizes that there's just something about running for people that love running mm-hmm. and they're going to do it. Yeah. You know? So if like you're going to keep doing it, why don't you compliment it or balance it with something with that's going to help you run more and, and probably not injure yourself yeah. as much as we, as we age a little bit. Our right. bodies don't want us to do some of the things that we were able to do when we were a little bit younger. Definitely. So, yeah, I do. I, I love Pilates. You know, I think, like most guys, I was resistant to it because mm-hmm. I was like, what is it? And guys don't like doing things that they're not knowledgeable of okay. or not that <laughs> they can be good at. And I also thought it was mostly for women. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but I started to do it because I was like, I, I've, I've had to like lift weights since I was 13 years old for right. sports. And I just got tired of doing that. Like yeah. I just literally got tired of doing those kinds of things. And so I was like, you know what, I'll try this out. And it was hard. You it's know, like, so hard. Yeah, I'm still sore. I want to focus yeah. on like biceps and thigh, like all these are you know, big muscle groups. But Pilates is about your core, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard. It's really challenging. It's really challenging. I think as, as guys, like we oftentimes don't want to do those things. It's easier mm-hmm. to curl some weight or bench right. press some weight. And this is really hard. And so it was humbling for a long time. I guess it still is humbling. But like once I started to learn the, the ropes of it, it was not only such a great like body workout where I felt like my posture was so good. My, mm. my, I had a bad back injury when I was in high school. Like I feel so good, but my mind is so sharp. Like Definitely, I, I feel yeah. so good from a mental perspective. And I'm like, I agree. Oh, there's no better way to like get your fitness in, but also to like start your back. Kick so that's why it, just, it really works in my schedule. Yeah. So if anyone that's listening and wants to get into Pilates, your wife's studio is on on Walnut Street. Yeah, I think it's technically 2016 Walnut, so okay. Clive Pilates and Fully Power Yoga. So you can come join me for a class. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm uh, I, I like my 630s, and and the the teachers are just awesome. They're they're yeah. not just incredibly well trained and experienced; they're just amazing people. Right. You know, like I. I'm a hospitality person through and through. I like being around hospitable, friendly, happy people mm-hmm. always. Not just right. in my business, but like in everything that I do in my life. And so like they're just rays of sunshine. I like seeing them. For sure. They challenge me and they push us hard and they love what they do so much and you feel it. Feel you that, know? yeah. So, yeah, so, so it's great. So come, come join me. Okay. And if you're out in the burbs, you can go to my friend's studio in yeah. Lee, Pennsylvania, LSF Wise. Um, anyways, okay. So I'd love to hear about the start of your story yeah. uh, from Chicago. Yep. And sort of, you know, how you grew up there and the influence your parents had on you. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a huge part of my story. I mean, I, I'm sure it probably is for most people, but it's something that I think about all the time now. You know, I, I, I wasn't born into, you know, a family business or, or necessarily even a, a, biz, uh, a family of people that were focused on business. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were the first people in their family to go away to college. Um, Unfortunately, didn't get to make it through college. They had me um, during that process, and so they okay. dropped out and, and pretty much took whatever jobs they could get. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they weren't able to fulfill their dream of getting their education to be able to do what it was that they wanted to do. And so, for you know, eighteen years growing up in their house, work was a very stressful, uninspiring, unfulfilling thing mm-hmm. um, to my parents, and therefore, therefore, to me and to my little brother as well. So, my parents really impressed upon me and my, my little brother two things. The first was, and I understood this pretty early on, was get your education. Mm. Like if my dad were sitting here right now, he would go on and on and on education. about how not getting his education has held him back from doing what he's wanted to do. Okay. And so he always impressed upon us to be able to get our education. And the second thing that took me some time to actually truly understand mm. was you're going to work a lot in your life, so do something you truly love to do. Right. And like I didn't really understand that, but I can okay. hear him saying that in my head over and over and over. And so you know, I focused a lot, I think, on, on education. And, you know, I was I was a pretty good student. 
but I didn't necessarily go to great schools for, for most of most of my life. And then um, in middle school, I had a teacher who pulled myself and my parents aside and said, you should really like to send Nick somewhere somewhere different okay. uh, for, for school. And so my parents made a, a tough decision that I was not supportive of for a good two years mm-hmm. to send me pretty far from my home into a completely different area for high school. So okay. it was a private Catholic high school. And again, I did not, I really did not like it. I was, I, I didn't really fit in. Uh, I was. I went from being a really good student where I was to being um, behind in every single subject, mm-hmm. um, and so like that was humbling, you know. Yeah. As, uh, especially as a young, immature boy, you know, like I only knew confidence, you right. know, whether it was, yeah, true confidence or false confidence. Like I only knew confidence, and to be behind in everything mm-hmm. was was tough, and to look different than everybody else and to come from somewhere different than everybody else, it was it was hard. Like mm-hmm. I, I wanted to transfer for for at least two years, but. I stuck it out. My parents yeah. didn't want me to transfer. Um, and yeah, I eventually started to catch up. And I realized now, I don't know that I knew it then, but I realized now that like, that was when I started to, to deal with like, real adversity. Mm-hmm. And I had to either make the decision to take the easy route, which is to go okay. cry in the corner about it all the time, right. or to like, you know, step up and work hard mm-hmm. and, you know, overcome those things. And, and I and I fortunately chose to do that, but I did it because like, my parents were on me about it. My basketball coaches were on me about it. I had a lot of people who like really stepped up and like mm-hmm. gave me a hand and, and okay. pushed me hard. And I eventually caught up and I got to fulfill the dream that my parents had for themselves, which was to go away for college and actually graduate. Right. Get, okay. get me out. Get the uh, my first the first diploma in our family. You know, by going going away to college. Okay. And so I went to Cornell mm-hmm. and you know that was um, that was obviously a big a big step for us you know right. my, my parents you know, really talked a lot about getting getting your education and uh, I was fortunate that you know I, I think I, I was a good student I had some pretty good test scores but like it's hard to get into any university today right, yeah. York, let alone a place like Cornell and so being a pretty good baseball player I think helped me helped me get in but I think having dealt with that adversity that I dealt with in my high school mm. I was a little bit more prepared to be surrounded by the people I was surrounded with definitely because now all of a sudden I had people from all around the country and all around the world, mm-hmm. they're like the best in their high school, they're the best baseball player, they're captain of you know, every team and student government and yada mm-hmm. yada. And if the 14, 15 year old Nick Bayer was dealt that, that hand, right. man, I would have been like, I would have been rocked. Yeah, bit, yeah. You know? but, but having gone through what I went through in high school, I think I dealt with it in a, in a very positive mm-hmm. way. I was like, I felt so grateful to be surrounded Prepared, by these people. Yeah, that like, I'm like, I, if I could learn to play up to their level, like how bright does my future look? So, right. so that was that was huge, you know? And so I'm glad you're saying that about high school too, because I have a couple of nieces and nephews yeah. that are in high school and it's tough. Yeah. And I keep telling them it gets better. You just gotta hang in there. Yeah, so. it is tough because like you're not like I was I was more mature. I mm-hmm. understood my emotions more when I was 18, 19, 20, mm-hmm. when I was 14 or 15. Like I, I think back on those times, I'm like, God, like yeah. I was, you know, I think like most people, but certainly like boys at that age, like you're so immature. Mm-hmm. You think you know everything. Like, right. You're, you're so, I was so self-confident and yada, yada. Like, yeah. I was so, <laughs> I was so immature. But, um, but that's like part of the reason why if you like look at what we do at Saks, it's like where mm-hmm. I spend my time from a nonprofit perspective, how we've built the social impact mission that we have here, that I'm living proof that if you don't have a good network around you, mm-hmm. really bad things are most likely going to happen. Whereas if you're surrounded by people who actually care about you and go out of their way to mm-hmm. do something nice for you, you can come from my background or even worse background than mine and go and do anything. Right. There's no, like when I was a young kid growing up, there was no one who was like, Nick's going to create his own business, employ 800 people, like 
be on these nonprofit boards and do all these amazing things because like that just wasn't what people from there did. Right. Like, that, that wasn't like a, a natural sort of trajectory of, mm-hmm. of where people went in life. But I had some people who really cared about me in my life and that like really, I mean, it made, it made all the difference. Definitely. Yeah. So you went to Cornell and you played baseball there. Yep. Um, did you develop any life skills from being a student athlete that helped you with your life today? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually really interesting to ask that question because I woke up to an article today that was posted by the NCAA mm-hmm. that um, is about our former student CEO. So everyone who runs our college locations are mm-hmm. called CEOs, student CEOs, capital right. officers. So these are these are young people who run their own business. So mm-hmm. they have the entire team reports to them. All marketing plans are created and operated yeah. them, and then they have full profit loss authority. Um, this is amazing stuff. And so last semester, students you know, here in Philadelphia, LaSalle University, is a young lady named Emma Schweiger, mm-hmm. who is just a phenomenal young lady. She's also the, the captain standout on, the, on their softball team. Okay. I think last season, she broke their single season record for home runs. She's probably breaking in this year as a senior. TNT wrote an article about how she's not only an amazing student, mm-hmm. was yeah, a standout on the softball team, yeah. but was also a CEO while, while I was an undergrad Amazing. and it was just, it was really nice for me to read it because like the, the table, I'm on the other side of the table. Right. I'm that person providing opportunities and mm-hmm. support and guidance. Sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's like just celebratory love, right. but now I'm on the other side of what people did for me for so long. And so reading that article meant so much to me because as a former division one athlete, you know, it's tough. Like mm-hmm. It's, it's really, really hard. Like I look at it, like if your life is like social, what happens when, when you're competing or you know, with your team and then academics, like, I'll admit I lean towards two of those three. Emma leans into all three. She's right, good right. at all yeah. three. I leaned into two of the three. Okay. The one that was left out was academics. You know, okay. I graduated, right. <laughs> but I'm never going to like celebrate my GPA. Right, no right, one's right. going to want to celebrate my GPA because for me, like I made the decision when I got there that I'm like, I'm, I think I'm bright enough to be here. But that's not where I'm going to stand out. Like my, my natural love was for not like sitting in the classroom for 55 minutes and memorizing every single word and memorizing everything for a test. My, right. like, I was put into a place like that to be a leader. So I was one of uh, yeah, one of the first ever two-time captains. The Cornell baseball has been around for over 150 years. Okay. One of the first ever two-time captains with junior and senior. I remember being as a junior that my, my teammates elected me to be a captain. I'm like, these are people whose parents are doctors and executives and business leaders and mm. they chose me to be the, the captain of the team. Like that was one of like the crowning moments of my life at that point. Yeah. Um, so I knew that like being a leader was such an important thing for me and then right. building a network. You, Definitely, know, you, you, yeah. go, you go to way to college, any college for that matter, but certainly a place like Cornell where people come from 130 different colleges, all states, you go there to build a network. Mm. And so I worked really, really hard to do those things, but it was really hard. But playing baseball, division one baseball in the North, is so hard because yeah. and, and you then you go on the Ivy League side where the Ivy League is very restrictive of how many hours you can practice, right. how many hours you can travel. When I was there, you had to play 42 games in State Division One, and we didn't have what Cornell now has, which is a full turf field. So mm-hmm. it can literally snow tonight. Yeah. They can shovel it. The only dirt is the pitcher's mound. They cover that, they shovel it off and play the next day. Right. If that happened when I was there, like you wouldn't be playing for two weeks. Right, right, right. So okay. like, we we would have to play. We played doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday, we have to play two or three games midweek. Mm. But then you have the Ivy League restriction. It was just it was Tough. nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was nuts. I remember coming back from my first ever trip to Dartmouth. We played there on Sundays. We played two games on Saturday at, at Harvard. You travel up to Dartmouth, played two games there. 
And then you get on the bus, you drive back. I remember looking around, it was like midnight and you're in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York, midnight on yeah. Sunday. And everyone's with their lights on just studying. Studying, yeah. And I was like, man, this is intimidating, but pretty cool. Yeah. These people are so focused and determined. Right. To not have just like played hard four games in, you know, 36 hours, but then they're just focused on biochemistry and economics and yada right. yada. Like I, I remember that being really cool. So it was awesome to like compete and celebrate successes and commiserate over failures, but then to watch these guys just grind. Definitely, like, really yeah. Be disciplined. Like that's that was the probably the, I mean I learned so many things at Cornell, but that was probably the biggest the best, thing. Yeah. You know. So I went to Penn, I did track and cross country. So you know so uh, the, yeah. the whole year grind. But um but no there are a couple times where I thought about quitting because the schedule is just so insane. Yeah. But I'm glad I held out because I remember when I graduated I was like this is so much easier than what I just went through. Like yeah. life like you know like um getting an actual job was yeah. easier than the schedule that I had to pay. I mean that's I mean Emma says that in this article. I'll send you this article after yeah. this. I mean, it's, she did I mean one she crushed being a CEO but two her quotes in there, I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I was sending it around to my private equity group today and to all of Saxby's time. I was like pulling out some of it. I pretty much was just rewriting the article. Right. And now I should have just, but like some of these quotes were so impressively mature. Mm-hmm. Like what she said that she's like, I'm able now to take like the leadership that I have in softball, but now the leadership that I've been able to develop professionally. So when I'm interviewing, mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm on a whole nother level. Right. I'm interviewing for jobs and what I'm going to do in my career because I've had both of these experiences. Right. I mean, like, that's what we do this for. We do exactly. this to be able to prepare them to not only do something that they love, but be ready to be able to do that as well. Right. Because if they can do that at 22, they're so much farther ahead than, than I am. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's great, but it's being, being an athlete in school was, uh, was awesome. Yeah. You know? And look, I, I made decisions. I didn't play baseball any of my three summers. Okay. Was, my coach wasn't happy about it. Um, and Coach Ward was like, is still like one of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. He was at my wedding. Like, I, I love him to death. But I knew when I got to Cornell, like, baseball helped get me there. But it okay. wasn't my future. My brother played five years for the Pirates. And for me, it was like, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to compete with the summers. I got to go live in New York. I got right. to go live in Charlotte. I got to go live in LA, a place I'd never been before. before and yeah. new jobs and internships that I'd never done before. I was like, that created a whole new opportunity for me. And it hurt my ability. Like, I, yeah. we, I, you know, we expected that I was going to get drafted right after my senior year. And I remember a couple of scouts called me and they're like, Nick, we can't get the higher up in our organization to want to draft you because right. nobody doesn't play baseball. Play in the summer, summer. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't think they do. Yeah, I remember getting a call on, on the second day of the draft in 2000 and they're like, my cross checker who ultimately has to sign off on this like, right. doesn't think you actually like he doesn't know, yeah. he doesn't know he's never seen you pitch like I have um, he doesn't think you like baseball like, who doesn't play baseball in the summer you know, right. you're a baseball player who doesn't play in the summer but someone who doesn't like baseball I remember hearing him say that I was like I think they're actually right, like, right I really right. like baseball but I didn't love it to, exactly. to that extent like my, my brother did and so I got to exactly where I was supposed to get I think, got it know, okay got everything that I possibly needed out of so after college, I read that you moved to Atlanta for yeah. a couple of years, yep. and then you started the Saxby's when you were 25. Yeah. So how did that start? Was it like a um, lightning bolt moment, or did it evolve over time? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was 22, so I was getting out of college, I got the phone call, I'm not going to get drafted, but then you can come work out for us and impress okay. people. I'm like, oh, great. I could be a 6'5 right-handed pitcher. Like in the low 90s, there's a thousand of them now. And they're like, I'm right, right. stand out. Yeah. Um, so then I had to start being like, all right, what am I going to do? I, I sort of had penciled in. I'll play minor league baseball for a couple of years okay. and sort of sort things out. Yeah. Um, 
So I had to scramble, but that's when like the second part of my parents' advice um, yeah, started to stick in, which is like, you're going to work more than anything you do the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So do something you love. And so I started to try to like figure out what it was that I wanted to be able to do. And, and I like, I still this day, I think nonstop about the people who did things for me. Oftentimes mm-hmm. it was just kicking me in the butt, but they kicked me in the butt out of love. And staying in contact with them and hearing how proud of me they they are and how happy they are to see me do something with mm-hmm. my life. I'm like, I want to do that. Right. Like, I want to do that for other people. Mm-hmm. But I've always felt like my calling was more in business. Okay. You know, like I, you could go into coaching and teaching, which is amazing. But I just oh, there was something about business mm-hmm. that I really wanted to prove myself in. And so the idea of like creating my own business so that I could be competitive and be successful, but to use that success to do that thing for mm-hmm. a lot of other people was what always motivated me. But I, I didn't, right. when I was in school, we didn't teach entrepreneurship. Now, as I'm on the board of CCP, we teach entrepreneurship. Okay. Penn, yeah, Wharton, in many ways changed their curriculum right. to go from being a finance school to being one of the best, if not the leader in entrepreneurship as well. Like, right. the, the pendulum has swung entirely differently. So when I was coming out of school, like, I had no training experience. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I even knew what the word entrepreneur was. Okay. And a quick aside, I asked my son last night. My son was in here for a happy hour for mm-hmm. all the new sections. So fun. Last night. Yeah. Awesome. And I was putting him to sleep last night, and he, he goes, thanks for coming to my office today, Dad. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> what, what are you doing, Sachs? He's like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> I remember looking at him being like, he's five years old. Yeah. He loves coming to my office, and he knows what an entrepreneur is. And like, he's late years beyond yeah. where I am. So right. he sees his dad and his mom love what they do for a living. He right. sees how we treat people and the, the kind of impact that we try to make in this world. And he knows what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I was the opposite. I had no right. idea what I wanted to do. But I knew by the time I was like, moving forward in my career, like I need to create something. And it doesn't take long for me to inventory my skills because there aren't a lot. I'm a people person. Right. So I knew I needed to be in a people-centric business. I wasn't going to build, build an app. I could barely use my phone. Okay. Um, but I needed to do something in the people business. So at that stage of my life, I was pretty much just working hard, uh, playing a lot of basketball with my, my friends, okay. and hanging out at the bar. Yeah, like that's okay. what I was doing. And you were like, in Atlanta, so right? I was in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, it was so simple. And so like, I was getting, I was leaning hard in the direction of like own bars, restaurants, nightclubs, okay. like giving it a run there. But what were you doing in the corporate world? I was so I started in consulting. Okay, I got um, it. Yeah, which I just I wanted to be able to I wanted to be able to learn how to manage. I wanted to see how businesses worked on the inside sure, yeah. and learn how to be able to manage people. So I did some like intra company management consulting, got it. Which, okay. which was awesome. It, it worked great for me. Um, but I I was afraid of like the night the night element to those businesses. Okay. You know, but I think it'd be awesome in the time, but I'm like, if I'm forty in the restaurant, 45, 50, yeah, okay. that's tough. Yeah. Like, you don't, you're not going to be at home reading to your son at 8.30 at night mm. on a Friday night. Like, right. That's when you make your money on those businesses. Mm-hmm. And so, lo and behold, the coffee business just starts to explode. At that okay. Time. You know, mostly because of Starbucks. Starbucks was opening sure. five units a day when I was starting Saxby's. In the, so, they were opening five units a day just in the U.S. alone. Wow. So okay. business exploded. Yeah. And I didn't know it then, but I know it now that I'm a big pie kind of person. Meaning okay. I like the idea of being an entrepreneur in a large expanding pie and trying mm. to get your piece right. versus trying to do like what Mark Zuckerberg did, which is like create a pie. You know, right. like it's amazing. Like, wow, that's so sexy and impressive that Mark created Great social that. media yeah. and that a lot of people do, but there's one Mark Zuckerberg, you right. know? And so like, I like the idea of going into like a big pie industry, which is what I saw in the quote unquote coffee business. Okay. Thing. But I was going to apply 
that one skill that I think I bring to the table, which is like emotional intelligence and this commitment to just taking care of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like really being like someone who goes out of their way to treat people well. And so that's why I want to go into the coffee business. I didn't know a damn thing about the coffee business. And my litany of mistakes for many, many years and to this day will we'll prove that. But the original hypothesis that we're going to go into a business that can serve anyone and okay. can employ anyone and be focused on extreme hospitality to both our team members and our consumer, okay. that hypothesis is played out very true. Yeah, it's played out very true. And essentially what I mean by that is that you can be a, you could be Jim McGuire Mm. or your father or any other amazingly successful person and go into Saxby's and there's something you can afford and there's something that you're going to like on our menu. Alternatively, you could put your hand out at 23rd and Chestnut and someone out of their good grace Mm. can put $2 in your hand. You can come into Saxby's and afford anything and we are going to treat Jim McGuire or that person who unfortunately slept in the street the night before with dignity and respect and they can share a space together. And what we've also been able to do is from an employment perspective. I have okay. people in this company who have PhDs. I have people who have been out of, in and out of homeless shelters since they were 15. Mm-hmm. They've been able to build both jobs and careers here. And like, right. That's why I want to get into the coffee business. The original hypothesis, ironically, has worked really well. Mm-hmm. It's just the person, me, who was steering that hypothesis for many years was prone to making a lot of mistakes. Okay. Yeah, you I were 25 at that point? Yeah. yeah. 2005? Yeah. Around? Okay, got it. Yeah, so I was just, you know, I was prone to making mistakes like mm-hmm. I guess like most good entrepreneurs are but right. uh, as I like to say like you can make a lot of mistakes just don't make the fatal one okay the fatal ones you know right, so right. Um, yeah so that, that was the original sort of hypothesis and why I made the leap and okay. it, it feels like so long ago but it is so funny when I look back on my notes I, I love pen to paper and mm-hmm. like, I look back on my notes and I'm like the original idea was really right. Right. Know? But I'm like, but then I decided to do it in franchising. Yeah. And then I decided to open as many markets as I possibly could at the same okay. time. It's like, oh, crazy how I just like wanted to make all these self-inflicted wounds. Right, Maybe right. I didn't want to, but I just did. Yeah. But the original hypothesis has really proven, proven itself. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting you say that because um, Jay Wright I interviewed and um, hmm. hope they win. Today's Thursday, the first day of March Madness. Uh, so yeah, hopefully yeah, exactly. they'll know yeah. Uh, I mean, but, uh, what, a, what an <laughs> impressive guy. Like, I, I've gotten to be friends with um, a young man who played on his team okay. just recently, Tony Chanel. Okay. Phenomenal basketball sure, player. Yeah. And Tony is just an incredible young man. Yeah. And so he and I built a, a relationship. And I've never met Jay before, but I'm okay. sure I like, read everything about him. I watch him on TV and I root for his teams. But he's like, Nick, he's an even better person than how he's portrayed. Yeah. Like, he's portrayed as a really good person. He's, like, sure. he's an even better person. Yeah. I'm like, that is inspirational for me because like, he has such a big platform. Right. And you can use that platform to sort of cover up yeah. your dark sides. Right, right, Or you could be that great of a person. Yeah. And like, the, the domino effect of people that you're going to impact is really impressive. Right. So he's, he's a person I like, hold in really high regard. Yeah. So when I interviewed him, it's funny because like for half of the podcast, all he talked about was the adversity he went through. Yeah. Like everyone remembers 2016, 2018 when they won the championship. But he had, it took him like 20 years to get there. Yeah. So similar Gosh, to where you started. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So similar to where you started, like going through those dark times, but then he came out of it, which is such an inspiration, which I know you did too. So yeah. can you talk about when you guys went bankrupt during those first, I think, three years or so? Yeah. I okay. mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's been, it's been a long time, but obviously it's something that like I'll, I'll never forget. And there, mm. there's like a million sort of backstories to it, but it's one of the things that like, one of the reasons why I like to spend so much time in, in higher ed is not to be able to show people how good I am at making decisions, mm. it's to do the complete opposite. It's, it's to be able to say like, 
here's where I made like these critical bad decisions that I made and here's how those things played out, mm-hmm. you know? And so there, there's several critical functions to that. The first is you need to determine your why when you're creating a business. Everybody just focuses on like, what's the product you're going to sell? Okay. Why, why is the product good? And then what do your financials look like? They all look like a hockey stick, okay. you know? But I'm like, right. the critical thing that's always missing is like, what is the culture? Why is this business going to matter? Okay. Why are you doing it? What's the culture that's going to allow you to differentiate? Because product is a very easy thing for people to replicate. Culture is not. Right. Culture is how you win marathons. Okay. Product is how you might win some sprints. Sure. Like being an entrepreneur and building a long-standing successful business is about winning a marathon. Okay. Culture is the glue that goes from starting that way race to winning that race. And so culture is one. The second thing I talk about is, is partnerships. Mm. Something I should know very well being a, a former athlete, you know, okay. so like when you have a cancerous player or teammate on mm-hmm. a particular thing, like you know the ripple effect of that. Like right. They show up and they're a bad mood at practice or a bad mood at a track meet or at a game, like mm-hmm. you know the ripple effect of that. But I was too immature when I was starting Saxby's to understand how important that actually was. Mm-hmm. And so I got myself into a into a bad initial partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, I um I, I partnered with people that, you know, I'm not even gonna make judgments on people. We should have never been partners. Okay. We'll put it. We'll put it that way. And so we tried to do this thing for like two years, and you know, finally I was able to find someone who would put some capital into into Sachs. Okay. I I put capital into Sachs by putting one hundred fifty thousand dollars on my credit card. Right. Um, I would American Express wasn't going to give me any more money, so mm-hmm. like I needed to raise money. And so there was an angel investor here in Philadelphia that um, was able to put some money into into Sachs and we moved the business to Philadelphia. So like. Amazing. All, right. despite all this bad stuff that that sort of move created, it's ultimately way better because okay. this is like the perfect city for me and my family and my business. That's a whole right. other side. But unfortunately, that partnership created a lot of tension with my former partnership. Got it. Okay. And it was litigation that we dealt with for two years. Wow. I'll never forget. I think it was like 2000, beginning of 2009. Um, I remember looking at a monthly financial statement and I noticed that we spent more money lawyers than payroll in the company. Wow. And I was like, that's not the way a business should run. Right. And certainly not the way that I ever wanted to have a business. Like receiving, you know, certified mail of like a lawsuit or a response to a complaint. And like it was it was a weird way to get us yeah to go into the business world mm-hmm. because like knock on wood, I mean we've gone many, many, many years now without having one legal issue whatsoever mm-hmm. but my early years were like that's all it was and right. I almost like I conditioned to think that that's how business was done right and I'm so glad I got like a second lease on life but we got to a point where I'm like I, this isn't what I want like this right. is just not what I want to do mm-hmm. and so I, we talked to our lawyers we talked to our accountants we had been trying to settle this this litigation it was just it was a bunch of egotistical men me, okay. me included egotistical men fighting over something that was at the time valueless Okay. But like nobody, no male in there could like drop their ego to a point to be like, right. what are we doing? Yeah. And so we knew that the only way to resolve this was going to be in the, the court system. Mm-hmm. And so our lawyer at the time was like, look, I've tried to go out there. They lived in another place. There's two people, one of which is a family member of mine, lived mm-hmm. in other places. Like I've tried to settle and like, they're, they're just not rational. Okay. And he's like, the only way this is going to happen is, and, and like Sash said, really, Started to really take off. Like oh, we, started, wow. we started to become successful. Yeah. And um, he's like, you just continue to drag this thing along, and okay. then one day you people will be rational, right. or you put the company into bankruptcy. Okay. Because what bankruptcy will do is it forces a fast finish line. 
There has right. to be an end point to that. Okay. Other litigation, like you could, there's court cases that will go on for decades. There you just continue to use the legal system. Right. And it was a tough decision, but I knew when he explained it to me and I asked him questions back, I was like, I want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. I need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that was the decision that we made. And, um, you know, it was, so we filed on April 5th of 2009. Okay. Right in the recession. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which the irony was like the business was actually going fine. Like, we, okay. we didn't owe people money. It was purely, it was purely the fact that we had this litigation we couldn't get to a finish. On. Got it. Okay. And so we filed on April 5th of 2009 because the litigation was out of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. It wasn't here. So every okay. time we had to like go to a court hearing, we had to go on a plane and go. It was like, it was a calamity. It was like the, it was the worst thing for our business. So yeah. You use sports analogy, you take a bunch, you know, you take away games and you make them all home games. Right. So it had to be done here. Okay. So anyone who thought they had a gripe with us had to actually now spend money and come here. Come here, okay. Lo and behold, no one did. No one did, yeah. And so, um, so we were able to do that, but it was tough because April 5th, 2009, we had to file for reorganization to deal with this litigation. April 15th of 2009, I was getting married. Okay. So wow. I had like... Pretty much nine day to go and meet with at the time we, we were franchised and you know, my team members and vendors to be like i need you to trust me this is the right thing for the business right we're going to continue to serve our guests fine we'll make all of our payroll this isn't about being able to pay our bills this is about dealing with some male ego litigation right over like the ownership of the business okay. that we will get through so you don't need to worry about it, but if you want to have, ask any questions, you can ask me anything you want, but okay. just trust me, we'll get through it. So okay. not only did we get through it, we got through it where our, our current private equity group bought the company got out it. of reorganization. Okay. So like, it's great that you have money and capital to be able to grow, but like just being able to bring sensibility and like the, what business should be. Business shouldn't be like reading through a response to a piece of litigation. Right. They should be sitting down in strategy meetings have really smart people who care about the business ask questions and provide solutions like that's what the second half of this business is been. right and it's okay. like thank god i guess i had the resilience to like fight through that right. yeah I, I did i remember being at that point and being like all right these are all my options i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna be like here you can have my ownership of the business i'm going to business school okay that was like one of my one options, of options yeah. on, the, on the table but i was like you know what I can, I can see the light at the end of the time. Mm -hmm. I can see Saxon becoming the business that I, I've always wanted it to be. And I'm like, I'm humble enough to be like, yeah, I made a lot of stupid mistakes in this mm -hmm. instance. Like, stupid and who I partnered with. Right. And how we structured our deal. It was dumb. Right. But like, so every single entrepreneur, I mean, I see Phil Knight's book up there, the, the founder of... I just read that. I was just thinking amazing. about his story compared to yours. It's amazing. He's, he's like, been through so I'll many I'll never forget where I was when I, when I read that book. And I was like, not, not that I need... Not that uh, all of us need the times where you're like, all right, I'm not that dumb. I'm not that, that like, I don't make that many mistakes. If you yeah. read books like that, you're like, that was a 20, it took me 20 years. So long. Money. It's like, a miracle like, Nike's here. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and ironically, like a big turning point for him was college. Yeah. Once he started sponsoring college coaches. Right. That was a big turning point. So like, yeah. I've always rallied around that, but I'm like, Saki's college program, there's so much similarity to like the Phil Knight story. There really is. You know? Yeah. So like, I mean, it's. The same thing. So like now I think I'm so open about these things that I think it's become like an endearing thing for people to know. Like I don't hide from it. I don't deny it. Like I, I was a huge part to blame. Yeah. It wasn't the world like falling on me. Like I made some really, really stupid decisions and got myself into a really tough circumstance. But 
also have the grit and resilience to be like, to come out right, of it. Yeah. I'm, I can come through this. You right. know? And, and, and I feel so grateful for being able to come through it. Like, that's why I think I'm just like so committed to what we're doing here because like success is so much, it tastes so much better when you come through so much like, right. agony and despair and you can share that success with right. so many people. Definitely. Yeah. And I want listeners to know too to listen to, if they need a book to read, read Phil Knight's Shoot Off because it's amazing. And it I was actually, uh, so the podcast I had before you was this guy, Billy Cunningham, who's big in Philadelphia. He coached the Sixers when they won in the 83 championship. Yeah. The last time they won, and he was a player on the 67 team. And so I brought up Phil Knight's book and he was, and we talked about the wild. He was like, you know, I'm friends with Phil Knight. I was like, you are? Oh my God, I'm obsessed with him because he was the first NBA coach that went into the contract with Phil for Nike. Oh, really? So it's cool. Yeah. I mean, the story, I mean, you know, you read the book, like Michael Jordan wanted nothing to do with Nike. I know. Adidas just wouldn't pay the astronomical price yeah. that Michael wanted coming out of college. So he, he pretty much fell into Nike's lap and he reluctantly signed a contract with them. Like, right. I'm learning Jordan, like old school Jordan. Yeah. Now, like I love not only the shoes, but like the entrepreneurial story of that. Right. It's just been just fascinating. So cool. and what I like too is that, like, I don't even know how active Phil Knight is in the company anymore. I don't mm-hmm. even think he's that active, but like the company continues to crush it. They do. Meaning yeah. that like, He's built not just such a great infrastructure of business, but he brought so much talent mm-hmm. and empowered talent. Like it's one of the things that we teach our young CEOs is like it might make you feel good when you are you go on vacation and the business falls apart. They're like, God, I'm irreplaceable. The the business can't work without right, right, yeah. And like that is being a horrible leader. Right. Like if that happens, you are a terrible leader and right. shame on us for letting that happen. On the flip side, if you're able to go visit mom and dad or you're able to go on vacation and the business moves forward without a click. It means that you put, you brought in great talent. Right. You trained and empowered them to be great leaders in your absence. And clearly that's what, what he has done. Because exactly. Because that company is, I started probably stronger when, when he's not there. And like that's a testament to him as an entrepreneur and as, as a leader. For sure. Yeah. I hope my legacy looks looks semi-similar. No, I really did think about your story when I was, because I was, at the same time I was reading his book, like about a month ago, I was doing your research. And I was like, oh my God, there's like a lot of similarities going on here. Um, that's cool. But anyways, back to Saxby's story. So, um. Can you tell the listeners, I don't think a lot of people know this, that you moved to Philadelphia because your yeah. investor was here and yeah. that was in 2008, I think? Uh, yeah, right, okay. right in time for the Phillies to win the World Series. Okay, yeah. cool. So what do you think about Philly? Because you weren't from here. So candidly, um, we, we threw like a little like going away party for ourselves. So, so my, my college girlfriend, now wife, okay. uh, she's two years behind me in school, so she moved to Atlanta. So we lived in Atlanta for, for a bunch of years together. We had this like, awesome apartment and we... we um, through a party for all of our friends. We had so many friends on there. It was just such an awesome time to be in Atlanta. Like mm-hmm. it was diverse, young, affordable, and um, it was just great. Like okay. we, we loved being there. Um, so we threw this little party. We're moving to Philly, and people were downright sad for us that we were moving to Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> like the, the reputation of Philadelphia was not great. Right. I mean, it was just not great. Yeah. It was the things now that I, I get annoyed by hearing. Unfortunately, I think we hear less of, like the stupid mm. stuff from like back in the day and right. snowballs and booing and, blah, and all yeah. these like stupid things. And I remember saying to Hallie, I'm like, because she's like, we were moving here for Saxby. She's like, yeah. you really, really believe in this thing? I'm like, I, I do. You know? okay. and so we moved here. And I remember the first weekend we, we got it. Like I had been coming up here a lot. I was sort of working out of right. here. And then Hallie officially moved up here. And I remember walking down. We lived in Washington Square West at the time. I remember just walking down Walnut and just like, we would bounce down like little side streets and numbered streets. I remember us looking at each other. We were like, 
what are we missing? Like, what sucks about being right. here? You know, we're yeah. like, this, there's like a special energy to this. You like, you're having a drink and then you walk by the first hospital in the U.S. and then you see this gleaming skyscraper and you see all these like cool people and like the sophistication, but people were like, it reminded me of being back in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a, a Midwestern realness, authenticity to okay. people. And, like, ever since literally the first time we stepped foot on the ground here, we were like, I'm not sure what people that are not from here, but even the people that are from here right. realize yeah. or like don't realize about how great Philadelphia is. Okay. And I think we happen to get here at a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Philadelphia's always been way better than even Philadelphians realize it is. But secondly, like what has happened in the last 10 years in Philadelphia is remarkable. Right. I mean, it is absolutely remarkable. It's like we've had not just that you had all these people who oftentimes come here for school, mm-hmm. stay here after okay. school. But I think you're also seeing people that are generationally Philadelphians start to realize how great the city is. Exactly. Like there, is, there's like a, there has been a real inferiority complex in mm-hmm. here that like should not exist. I know. Like it's, I it's totally agree. It's an amazing place. Like, I don't know if it's because we're so into sports that we had you know, generations of, of teams who didn't mm-hmm. win championships. I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm, not, okay. I'm not a psychologist. Right. But, I don't know what it is, but there has been an inferiority complex in the city that I think really is, been, yeah. is dying a fast death right now. Yeah. Uh, I think it is dying a fast death because, like, new Philadelphians don't see Philadelphia that way. Right. They look at it as an incredible place to be. And we're it's like, manageable. Yeah, and we almost don't want the world to know how awesome it is right, here. Right. So they're like, more people don't move here and, like, we lose our awesomeness. But yeah. I think you're also seeing generational Philadelphians be like, Damn right, Philadelphia is awesome. Like, yeah. I, like I'm taking my these sunglasses off and putting the new sunglasses on. Like, right. this is an amazing, amazing place. So we are. I mean, I, I honestly count my lucky stars that we wound up here. Yeah, so uh, I, I love being here. So it's been a little over ten years. So how has the company sort of evolved over those past ten years? How did you kind of rebuild it after you guys went bankrupt? Yeah, I mean, okay. the biggest thing, the first thing we did when MVP, the private equity group invested in us. I also love that their name is MVP. Okay. Yeah, like just yeah, yeah. the sports things. Like we call it, we, we don't use the word employee here, we use team member. Okay. Um, all of our CEOs are supported by coaches. You know, like yeah. there's a big sports thing here. But the first thing we did when MVP invested in Saks, like they, they really challenged me. They're like, Nick, all the shit that happened before this doesn't matter. Okay. You are an experienced startup. Mm-hmm. So you have experience, use that experience True, wisely, yeah. but you're a startup. How do you want how do you want Saxby's to be? What's the legacy that you want? How is this company going to be what you want it to be, knowing you have some of that experience? And I knew having gone through all that, I'm like, we didn't have a defined culture. There was culture in my head. There was this like idea that if you talk to Nick about what he wanted to do with his business, you'd get it. Right. But you can't do that as you scale. So like you look over my shoulder and you mm-hmm. see our mission statement to make life better. You see our sick core values. Like it's okay. the first thing you see and the last thing you see when you enter or exit our office. Like right. it is loud and proud, but it's not just that. Okay. It's the only thing that matters when we interview. We don't interview people based on like, do you drink coffee? Okay. What's between Costa Rican or Indonesian coffee? We don't care. Yeah. We will teach you all of those quote unquote hard skills, but we need you to look at what we believe in, okay. what defined culture, our mission core values, and it needs to make your heart race. Okay. If it makes your heart race, we will invest a lot and we will work hard to teach you all the hard skills, like the differentiation between coffee, how to understand a PL, how to manage people, like all the hard, right. you know, the quote unquote hard things we'll teach you, but you only are going to really want to learn if you if you really believe in our culture. So we had to literally press pause in this business. A team of us wrote our mission core values and we had to sort of go through the company and be like, this okay. is what Saxby's now stands for. Right. And many of the people were like, that's always what we thought Saxby stood mm-hmm. for, but it's nice that it's not written. written it's yeah, not believable. Yeah. Um, and some people were like, 
oh, that's cool, but I'm just about making money. Like, we were mostly franchises. Right. I'm just about making money. I was like, well, that's not the only thing that matters in South. So yeah. we would go and buy those franchises out. Okay. So over time, we started to open our own locations corporately, mm-hmm. and we started to buy franchises out, but under this backbone of, like, this is what our culture is. This mm-hmm. is what we believe in as a business. And so slowly but surely, it wasn't my original intention to go from being completely franchised to being corporately owned, okay. but that is what has happened. What happened. Okay. Um, as we became a mission-driven organization. Okay. And so during that process, we started to open our locations, started to buy out more franchisees, and got to the position where now we open, everything is done corporately at the right. tax fees. Okay. And so, and, and the big other advent there was on April 13th of 2015, so we're actually coming up on the four-year anniversary, which is crazy, I feel like it's coming so fast, is when we partnered with John, president of Drexel University, John Fry, yeah. and his team to open a exclusively student-designed and exclusively student-run cafe in the middle of the I love this concept. Yeah, so, so cool. that's, that's our experiential learning program, which is, you know, I blink. I, I remember that day like it was yesterday. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a picture of John and I taking Salvatore espresso shots. And, I mean, I didn't, I could sleep anywhere at any time. I'm a good sleeper. I didn't sleep a wink the night before that wow. because I was like... We just spent $370,000 to let students design their own sax mm-hmm. and it's going to be exclusive students that are going to operate it. And we're surrounded by competition and right. you know, all these like, yeah. challenges. And we pulled those espresso, Salvatore espresso shots at 9 a.m. And like we turned the keys at night to do that. And then the, like, students and communities started flowing in there as we've been there forever. And so John and I walk outside to the patio right on 34th Street where Langstra Avenue does sure, it. Yeah. Sure, He goes, Nick, he goes, this is a testament to how great this program actually is. We didn't even call it the experiential learning program. Okay. I don't even know what we called it. Okay. He called it a program. He's like, this is something that needs to be everywhere. Right. The opportunity to be able to, he's like, in higher ed, we're good at teaching in the classroom. Okay. Like, that's what we do, but the world has changed now. Higher ed can't operate like an ivory tower anymore. Right. We need we need industry to properly respect us, but build bridges so that students can learn in the classroom with us okay. and then apply that experientially through industry. Right. And, and, and being able to do that on college campuses is going to be a beneficial thing for students. And so you should figure out how to scale it. So that's when the experiential learning test became an experiential learning program. Okay. And so we have since partnered with 10 other universities um, and we're just slowly Outside of Philly too, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we were very focused on, on doing this in Philly first, we're okay. a proud Philly company, but also because we, we needed to be able to support it. Sure, you know, yeah. We call it, there's now two of these at Drexel, and so the first one's called OG Drexel. So okay. OG Drexel is, it's a team of, I worked there two Fridays ago, I worked at Schiffer uh, two okay. Fridays ago, and it's a team of 40 undergraduate students. Right. We serve hundreds of guests every single day. Yeah. We're surrounded by, we have four competitors within one block of all the okay. so it's a really competitive environment, and the student CEO, Alyssa Bennett, is 21 years old. Yeah. She's 21, man. She's 40 of her peers. Amazing. All these marketing plans, has a huge vendor network to deal with, and then she comes in here in our in our conference room at HQ and presents her problem all state members. Yeah. Like, it's a phenomenal undertaking that they're doing. And so we need to be able to support that a lot. So that's okay. why we grew it at, you know, Millersville and LaSalle and St. Joe's sure. and Westchester and Temple. Okay. And then, yeah, we were like, we've got something special here. Yeah. So Penn State calls us and says, can you wow. do this out here at, yeah, at, yeah. At, at University Park? And so then we open, like, you go into Penn State's meal, one of the best business schools in the country. Yeah. Yeah, it's this beautiful building, and the only food and beverage in the entire building is a 3,000 square foot exclusively student run Saxby. Okay. Run by a team of 9,500 undergraduate students. Wow. And That's it's amazing. It's just phenomenal. So now, like, We've built so much infrastructure because like we have people that support that, but now a lot of our student CEOs are starting to graduate. Okay. 
And when you've been able to run this kind of business, like you have a lot of resume builders. Yeah. But certainly here at Saxon, so now a lot of our student CEOs are graduating. Okay. And so it gives me that much more talent and infrastructure to be able to start to spread. Sure. So, so yeah. we'll be going to Pittsburgh in the fall. We're going to go down to Maryland in the fall. Yeah. So like now we're going to start spreading, uh, spreading the geography. But um, And that was in 2015 you started it. Yeah. Right? Okay. So yeah. four years or so now. And we, we've actually never really promoted it. Like, I'll talk okay. about it on podcasts and yeah. like some article, but we, we've purposely never promoted it because, I mean, back in the day, like, I wanted to grow Saxby's, like, way faster than we were ever ready to do. Right. And so, like, I've, I've touched that stove and I don't yeah. want to touch it anymore. Right, like, right. now I'm, like, so much more focused on, like, quality. Like, I love that you could call any of our presidents, provosts, deans, more importantly, the students. Yeah. Like, How's the experience of learning Saxby's at Temple? And they will just gush over gush how right, yeah. Oh, how is it at Penn State? They will just gush over it. Like, we have focused on quality. I was emailing with President Hanschick. Colleen Hanschick is the first lady person, first female president ever at LaSalle. Okay. An amazing person. Mm-hmm. I saw the article about Emma, her student this morning. I sent it to her. I'm like, Colleen emailed me back. I think they're on um, spring break. Emailed me back like one minute later. Like, wow. This is so amazing. I'm so proud of her. Like, that makes me feel so good. We have yeah. built a really high quality program that not just we value, but the students in our university partner. Definitely, value. yeah. So now we'll start to focus on, on scale, but... But scale will, will have to be predicated on quality, which is what we've been able to do up to this point, which is, which is really exciting. Right. Amazing. I want to be cautious of your time, too. But a um, couple more questions. I'll be quick, too. How many cafes do you guys have today? Uh, 27. 27. Yeah. Wow. And then how – I'm sure you get this a lot, but how do you make it different from, like, Starbucks, the competitors? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, like, as we talk about in this, is we're a mission-driven business. Sure, you yeah. Know, it's, it's everything you see. So I, I – if you can ask anybody who goes to Saxby's or look at my email or my Twitter on an average day, yeah. everyone writes back and like, I can't believe how friendly your people are. Like, right. How are your people so friendly? It's not because our training is necessarily better than anybody else's. Mm-hmm. Our recruiting is better than everybody mm-hmm. else's because we recruit on mission fit. Okay. Like always. We right. always recruit on mission fit. And so we hire people who like people. Like, right. That's our secret sauce. Like, yeah. We're very good at being like, you know what? You love people. And we're going to teach you how to be able to turn that into good business. Right. We're going to teach you how to like love your teammates, love your guests, and do good for your community. Okay. And so we are just, we're very steadfast and pretty single-minded to that. Okay. And so we went on hospitality. T- taste of product is a very subjective thing. We have the best cold brew in the business. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that some people will like some of our competitors cold brew. Okay. We had cold brew two years before Starbucks, three years before Dunkin'. Wow. We had an innovative product before all that. Guess what? Yeah. They have it now. Okay. People will compete on product or catch up on product. You can't win on sprints Service. alone on, on product. Right. It has to be human experience. Yeah. Because whether you're an 18 year old who's entering Penn as a freshman or you're a 37 year old business executive at 1717 March here in Philadelphia, we have Saxon's at both of those places. Whether you're the young person or the, the person who's mid career at this point, they both want to be treated well. They right. both want to be looked at in the eyes, smiled, and genuinely cared for. That translates culture, translates race, it translates financial position. And when you can put great product with an unwavering commitment to human experience mm-hmm. and hospitality, that's how you win. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's A, number one, is we, we win on our culture. And then B, we have a unique operating model. You right. know, we have a unique operating model that people are starting to know. They know that their dollars are being wisely spent because they're not just getting amazing hospitality and an amazing product, but it's going to support a company that 
that makes real social impact in Philadelphia and provides students learning opportunities. Right. Um, and so I think that the combination of those things is is what allows us to be, I mean, Starbucks is still our largest competitor and, and will be because we're such a, such a large company, but the distinction between our two experiences mm-hmm. has gotten to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a compliment too. This past weekend, I was out at my parents um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And so I slept at their place Friday night and then I woke up and went to SoulCycle um, in Ardmore and I was coming back. Who was your night. teacher? Uh, my teacher was Ryan. Ryan Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He He's just great. did an event here over the weekend with Lauren, Lauren Stavis. Yeah. So Lauren. I know is, she did this. Like my taxis. little sister. She's like yeah. my little sister. She uh, it, literally sitting in these chairs. Okay. She came to me and she's like, I'm a finalist for Soul Soccer. She did spinning. Like, yeah. her she done, I hired her out of college. She's a tremendous soccer player okay. at St. Joe's. I was her only employer her yeah, entire yeah. career. Started spinning on the side. She's super competitive and she's okay. like, I'm a finalist for Soul Cycle. She's like, I don't know if I can do both. I'm like, this is an easy decision. Yeah. You're going to Soul, Soul Cycle. Cycle. Yeah. And I wrote her recommendation and they called me oh, no way. as her final reference. And so I got to, I knew that she got the job before right, she right. knew, which okay. was special to me. Like, so. I, I love her. I'm taking her soul cycle class tomorrow. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah. So I've taken. I I actually I love her too because I've taken a couple of her classes and I told my friends I was like that girl's so like motivational. Oh, I started geez. following her on Instagram and everything. I'm like total fan. I'm so proud of her. But anyway, so after the class, I went to like a local coffee place out there and coffee was fine, but the service was like so terrible. I called my sister and I was like, "Have you been to this coffee place? It's so bad. Service is bad." Anyway, so then I would go back to the city and I sleep in the city Saturday night. I wake up, I go on a run. Um, and when I'm coming back from a run, I stop at Saxby's on Walnut Street. Mm-hmm. And I go in there, I get my groovy, and I get uh, the coffee. And the lady behind the desk was so sweet, so nice. Yeah. She was talking about the groovy. And it just shows that you, your service is really paying off. Yeah. It's and a really nice experience. When I say it, it's, the, it's the primary focus. You yeah. Know, like, there's, no, there's no one who operates enough to be who doesn't talk. Right. But if you talk about it as the third or the fourth or the ninth most important thing, then it's going to be the third, fourth, or ninth most important thing that comes through to your consumer. Like it is the number one thing. You can ask any of my team members. Yeah. Like, why? How did you get this job? Right. They're like, because I'm a good, I'm a good mission fit. Like I believe in the core values of Saxon. Right. They, they know that that's why they get the job. They know that that's what makes them great at their job. It's like it is the primary focus for us yeah. because. I know our product is great, but I also know that it's taste of product is subjective. Yeah. It's, it's just subjective. But Definitely, like, yeah. Human experience is not. And right. Can people choose to go back to the places that make them feel good. Definitely. And when you can also give a great product like we do, that's a winning formula. Yeah. Totally agree. In real estate too, um, my dad would always say, the buildings we own, like the tenants are our blood. Yep. So anything they ask for, anything they do, like respond immediately because customer service yep. will prevail. Yeah. Um, but Nick, thank you so much. Thanks. That was great. I think uh, we covered everything. So high five. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank high you. five. Thank you. It was awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah thanks yeah. so much. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success, or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Heaton. Or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.